You are listening to a message recorded at Living Hope Church in Southwick, Massachusetts. We hope you find encouragement through God's Word today. You know, as we were worshiping today, I'm just so incredibly struck with God's incredible love for you today. That God doesn't want you to go to church and be part of a church because that's what you're supposed to do because you have nothing better to do on a Sunday morning. He, he, he wants you to, to come to church to be in fellowship with him, to learn of him, and to be able to explore the depths of his love for you. And there's nothing that can compare to that. Every, every other love in this world will, will pale in comparison. Even the love of your spouse, even the love of your children, you know, even the love that you have for, for your children. Nothing comes quite as close because his love is unconditional. And it cannot be changed by anything we do. It cannot be uh, altered by anything that we do. His, his love is constant, the same, unchanging. And, and if you're here today, I just really feel like God wants you to know that. Yes, there's other things. Yes, we'd love you to come to Easter. Yes, there's other things going on, but I, more than anything else, if you, if you leave today without anything else in your head, know this, is that God's great and incredible love for you is unchanging. When you were far from him, he loved you. When you were doing really good, he loved you. But his love is unchanging. And so whatever's kept you from his house, whatever's kept you from getting close to him, know that it's what you think his love is like versus what his love is actually like. Because you are judging his love under the microscope of the love that you've encountered in the world that we live in today. Because just as easily as people can stop loving you or be offended or be troubled by things, we think God's love is like that. It's not. His love is an everlasting love. A love that will transcend even when you're dead and gone. And I would dare say even, this isn't in my notes, but I would dare say even that you will get a greater revelation of his love in your death than at any other time in your entire existence. Why? Because there's no veil anymore. There's nothing between you and him. There's no invisibility. There's no difficulty. There's no hardships of this life that will get between you and him. You will see him face to face. I don't know if you picked up on a theme today of praising the Lord and giving glory to his name. It is the first Sunday of the Passion Week. Why do we focus on this week? We focus on this week because it is the most significant week in our faith. Aside from Christmas, it is the most significant uh, event in our faith. Because if we think of it this way, if, if we have Christmas where Christ is born and God incarnate and he never dies for your sins, then there is no hope for us whatsoever. Okay? If Jesus was just a regular man and he was not God and he was born and then he died, he was just a man who died for a cause like every other martyr and every other religion. But if we understand that 
that Christ is the Son of God, then we understand there is something greater that's happening here, something bigger that's happening here, and it's right and fitting that we give our attention to it. Turn with me your Bibles to Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. If you don't have your Bible, that's fine. We'll have it on the screen behind me. If you need a Bible, we do that here, just so you know. If you want one, we can get you one. Just see myself or any of the people that you saw on the platform today. They would be more than happy to get you a Bible. But today is Palm Sunday. We're going to take a look at a familiar story. And maybe it's familiar to you. Maybe it isn't familiar to you. Maybe you've never been in church and this is the first time you're hearing about that. If so, that's a great thing. But if you're a long-time Christian, you've heard the story time and time again. We're going to look at it again because we need to be reminded of it. Take a look at Mark chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter into it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. And tie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied to a door outside the street, and they untied it. And some of those who were standing there said to him, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told him that what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And then they, meaning the disciples, brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat upon it. And, he spread, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, and Hosanna in the highest. As he entered Jerusalem and went to the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray today that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to respond to the truth of your word. Give us a revelation of yourself that we might see the living Jesus face to face here in this service, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is coming from Jericho to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place where the Passover takes place. It's the place where every Jew would travel at least three times a year to honor God with these three important feasts. And so his disciples and he are traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem. It's about a 17-mile trip. Along the way, they stop in Bethany, and they stop in Bethany because that's where Mary and Martha's house was. Mary and Martha's house was a base of operations for Jesus and his disciples. It would be a resting place, a place where they would regroup, a place where they would be fed, and he would stay there with them. While in Bethany at Mary and Martha's house, he says to his disciples, go on ahead to Bethpage, which is called the, uh, which means house of olives. Go to the next town, and I want you to go, and there's a colt that's tied up there, one that's never been ridden, one that's never uh, had anyone ride upon it, and I want you to untie it and bring it to me. And they do that, and they bring it back to Bethany, and on the way to, from Bethany to Jerusalem, it's only a couple miles in that distance, but it's a downward hill terrain. So it's going down from the Mount of Olives down into Jerusalem. And it's said that this journey from Bethpage to Jerusalem's eastern gate is one of the most scenic views of the city of Jerusalem that you will ever see. 
And so Jesus and his disciples are together. He is riding on this donkey, and he is traveling down to Jerusalem, and he enters what many believe through the Eastern Gate, which has its own messianic significance. But one might ask the question, why of all things he chose to ride on? Did he choose to ride on a donkey? Some of you might own a donkey. Some of you might have been around a donkey. There couldn't be a more stubborn, slow, or difficult animal. It's not the most efficient form of transportation. Why is Jesus riding on a donkey? Well, there's a couple of reasons for this. And you should know that anything that Jesus does in the Scriptures are not accidental or coincidental, but very intentional to communicate a certain idea or a certain visual. I don't know if you knew this or not, but in Jewish law, God forbid the people of Israel to own horses. And the horse owners in our congregation are saying, how could he do that? But he forbid them to own horses. It's in the Mosaic Law. Deuteronomy uh, 17, 16 talks about it. And you might think to yourself, well, why did he do that? And the answer to this is is that any credit that the Hebrews would have for victory in battle would not be because of the technology of their time. No horses, no chariots. There's no donkeys pulling chariots, I'll tell you that much right now. But it put the Hebrews at a significant disadvantage to the rest of the then known world. And God said, I don't want you to be able to claim victory by the strength of the horse of the rider. I want you to be able to say our victory because of the Lord. So Jesus is riding on a donkey, not a horse. When a king rode on a a horse, it was a sign that he came to make war and not peace. But if a king was riding a donkey, it meant to the residents of that city that he had come to make peace. Which is ironic because when... Those who are gathered around Jesus are uh, praising him and celebrating. What they are thinking in that moment is that Jesus has come to overthrow the Roman oppressors. He has come to do battle. He has come to set himself up as king. He has come to win a victory over the Romans. But if they were careful to observe what he was writing, they would know that he came in peace and not in war. When a person was to be coronated as king, a person would often ride the previous king's donkey to the ceremony. When King David chose Solomon as his successor, it says that King David put Solomon on his own donkey and had him ride through the streets and ride to the ceremony which he would be anointed king in 1 Kings 1.38. And he had him ride through the streets of Gihon and then the priest anointed Solomon as king. And there's also a Messianic prophecy, which you see quoted in some of the other Gospels that is here as well. It's from Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. The, the imagery that is here is meant to convey a certain message. And it says in Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations, and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So why a donkey? Because 
so that everyone would know what Jesus meant by his arrival. Jesus came riding on a donkey, a sign of the Messiah and the King. And believe me, the people noticed it. And this was intentional on Jesus' part. Jesus didn't happen to be just riding a donkey going to Jerusalem. He knew that this imagery would stir up the people. It would create two reactions. It would create reactions among the people to celebrate, and it would create a reaction among the religious leaders and Pharisees who considered him a false teacher, and it would motivate them and anger them. And he knew that, and that's why he did it. The triumphal entry demonstrates the king is coming, and the king is indeed coming whether you are ready for him or not. He was here. He created quite a stir. He arrives on a donkey, his followers with him, and a large crowd begins to follow him and gather around him. What can we learn from the triumphal entry? Three things. I promise I will be brief. And some of you are saying, yeah, right. I got, that's why the clock's on the back wall. Three things we can learn. Three lessons that we can gather from the triumphal entry. Number one, when the king comes, make way. When the king comes, make way for him. The king was coming. The imagery was clear. Jesus came with a messianic visual coming into the city of Jerusalem. And people began to gather. People began to part ways. They began to dedicate the street to him so that he would make his way through the street. They welcomed Jesus because they were tired of their situation. The reason why they were so welcoming of Jesus is because they were tired of Roman occupation. Every Jewish person longed for the day that the promised king would come and liberate them. When they saw Jesus, the one who could end their oppression, they welcomed him. And people would get out of his way and let him take up the streets. And crowds gathered behind him and in front of him to follow him. I want you to know something today. When you're sick of the way things are, And sometimes in life, that's exactly what happens. You're sick of the way things are. You're tired of the way things are going in your life. You're tired of the routine that you've been in. You're tired of the cycle that you keep finding yourself in. When there's situations like that, when we feel that way, we long for a deliverer. We long for a liberator. We long for someone to come into our life and to set us free from that cycle that keeps going around and around and around. There are times in our life where we think that that liberator is different people in our lives. That if we just find the right person to date, if we just elect the right of a f- official, if we just find the right job, then suddenly we'll be delivered from this cycle that we're in. I want to tell you today there's only one person that can deliver you from the way things are to the way that you hope them to be to the freedom that you long to find, and that is Jesus Christ. But you have to be open to the king coming in and taking control. You have to set your hopes on freedom and liberation You have to open the closed gate of your heart and let in the hope that things will be different. In order for Jesus to be truly king in your life, you have to make way for him. You have to open the door for him. And most importantly, you have to let him lead. The only hope of things ever being different in your life only happens when you let 
Jesus lead. To make way for him means that you clear everything else out of the way and give him priority because everything else becomes secondary in his presence. So you have to make way for the king. Secondly, when the king came, they laid things down before him. Mark 11 tells us that Jesus rode on a donkey. The disciples laid their coats on the back of the donkey for Jesus to ride on so they'd be comfortable. And the crowd laid their coats on the road in front of him. Uh, It says they cut down branches. Even the Gospel of John says they cut down palm branches and laid them on the street for him to ride over. And this created kind of a, a red carpet for Jesus. You know, we think of the Oscars, we think of the award shows, and they roll out the fancy carpet for the VIPs that come through. And these people said, you know, we're going to lay out a welcome mat for Jesus to come on. And this mixture of coats and branches paved the way for King Jesus. And this was an act of royal homage to a king that was to be coronated. In the Old Testament, when Jehu was anointed king, they spread their garments over the steps from the stand on before he was anointed with oil and signified as the king. 2 Kings 9.13 tells us that. It's meant that the king was too good for the ground that was laid before him. And in Jesus' case, people were giving him the royal treatment by laying things down before him. Those who didn't have garments to lay down found something else to put before him. What they were doing is they were acknowledging Jesus as king, and it was a way to honor him in a very special way. Notice that it wasn't a red carpet. Notice that it wasn't a a tapestry of fine silk or linen that they laid before him. Notice that whatever they had, they laid before him to honor Jesus and say, we recognize you, Jesus, as king. The king is coming. Jesus rides into our lives And we have to make room for him. Sometimes Jesus comes into our lives and it's rather unexpected. Sometimes he appears on the scene and we don't think anything of his appearance, but he's here to make himself known. He's here to declare himself as king. He's here to be able to set up rule and reign in your life. But more than that, we have to lay things down before him. Jesus is not looking for gold or silver. He's not looking for red carpets or silk. He's not looking for pomp and circumstance. He's looking for us to lay down whatever is important to us so that he can be over them. I want you to get that image in your mind. They laid them down so that Jesus could be over them. To acknowledge Jesus as king means that you willingly give up the one who you, give, you willingly give up being the one who is always in control. It means that you live to follow him, not that you live for him to follow you. And there are times where his word and his leading will tell us to put things down, things that you might have thought were important but weren't, things that you thought that you needed but you didn't. To acknowledge Jesus as king in your life means that you give him the throne and you give him the crown. Hear me when I say it today. Either Jesus is king of all of your life or he is king over none of it. Jesus is either king over all of your life or he is king over none of it. There is no co-regency with Jesus. There is no I'm in charge and he's in charge. 
to acknowledge Jesus as king means that, Lord, I choose to give you and lay everything down before you and to have you rule and reign and guide and direct my life, and I will follow it as a subject follows a king, as a devoted follower follows a master. That's the relationship that we're looking for. There are no two kingdoms in our life. There is only one. It is either our kingdom or it's his kingdom. And we must choose to follow after him. Part of the reason why the world has such a hard time acknowledging and living and submitting to Jesus, it means that we have to give up being king over our kingdoms. And sometimes that's hard to do. Sometimes it's hard to imagine giving up what we own, what we like, what we want to do in order to have someone else lead the way. But that's how it has to be because either he's king over everything or he's king over nothing. We need to have him be the person in charge and the one who makes decisions and the one who is really in charge. As Christians, we must give over our rule and our life to Jesus. How do we live that out? What does that look like? That means knowing his words, following his teaching, and living according to his truth. In this way, we show that he is in charge and we are not. Thirdly and finally, I told you, we're there already. Isn't that great? We're there. On the third point, we're almost done. Thirdly, when the king comes, they gave him the highest praise. Verse 9 and 10. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David and Hosanna in the highest. Those who were in the streets began to rejoice and praise. The three things they said, they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the word Hosanna literally means, O Lord, save us. O Lord, liberate us. O Lord, set us free. Blessed is the liberator that comes to set us free. The people were rejoicing because they looked at Jesus as God's deliverer, not from sin, though, but from the oppression of Rome. Secondly, they said, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They believed and declared that God was going to restore the kingdom of Israel today. They truly believed that. And thirdly, they said, Hosanna in the highest. In other words, let God be praised in the highest heavens. We talked about it a little this morning. Let God be praised in the highest heavens among the angels and the heavenly hosts. Let all things praise him for this day. That's what they were saying. And they gave him their praise. And I don't, I don't think for a minute that they didn't mean what they were saying. I don't think for a minute that they were just saying, you know what, like this doesn't mean anything to me. I think they meant their words. Their praise was loud. Their praise was boisterous. This praise was so uh, disturbingly, there was such a din of noise coming from this crowd praising the Lord and shouting out his name that the Pharisees said, you know, Jesus, tell your followers to quiet down. And Jesus said, no, I won't tell them to quiet down. For if they do quiet down, the very rocks would cry out. Praise is an acknowledgement of God's place and position. Praise is an acknowledgement of God's place and position and as king and creator of all. Praise is a response of a grateful heart that has seen his savior and deliverer. Praise is 
something that's given to someone that we recognize is worthy of it. If you've been set free by Jesus, the only appropriate response to that freedom is indeed praise. Praise is a declaration of appreciation and gratitude. Let me illustrate it this way. Have you ever almost been killed? You ever almost been in like a near fatal accident? Or you almost like, you know, had something hit you? You were walking in the road or you weren't paying attention and this bus is coming by and someone pulls you out of the way and you're just not paying attention. And there's that, that brief moment of shock, isn't there? You're just, you're terrified in a moment. You're like, I came that close to death. And then there's the, the, the expression and elation of, thank goodness that you were there. Thank you so much for rescuing. Thanks, I, I would have been a goner if it weren't for you. That's what praise is. It's recognizing that God has set us free and rescued us from death. We could have died. We could have been dead in our sin, but Christ saved us. That should be the posture of our praise. Grateful, thankful, dare I say exuberant, boisterous, loud, joyful because of what God's done for us the one who has saved our soul, Jesus Christ. But even in their praise, how many know that praise can be short-lived? You can be praising God one moment and frustrated the next. I know that's never happened to anyone here, but to me it has. You may have even been on the ride home from here and been frustrated. And said some things that you probably shouldn't have said. You might have drove, driven home and, you know, you're completely, your attitude's changed by the time you pull into your driveway. You were in a good mood when you left church and you were in a terrible mood by the time you got home. That's how fickle we are. That's how easily our demeanor changes. That's how easily our attitude changes because we are so driven by the world that we live in. Their praise was short-lived. Their praise was fickle. They were praising Jesus because they wanted something from him. They only praised Jesus because they thought he was their hope to overthrow Rome. Overthrow Rome. They were only thinking in physical terms and physical needs. They were praising Jesus for what they thought he would do, not for who he was or for what he had in mind to do. That's the difference. There's the difference. Praising God for what we can get out of him is a pagan practice. It's what the people did when they offered offerings to idols. They said, if I just worship God in the temple, if I just burn incense before him, if I just bring my sacrifice before him and praise, I can manipulate God into doing what I want. They figured if they did the right things, if they said the right words, they spoke the right incantations, their God would do what they wanted. God of the universe, the God that we serve is not like that. He is incredibly mindful of us, our surroundings, and all that we are. He sees us at all times, in all places, in our good and in our bad. May the Lord have mercy on all of us. He sees us all the time. More than your wife, more than your husband, more than your kids, more than your infant son or daughter. They see you all the time. But God sees you even more than that. We praise God not for what we can get out of him. And, and, and I pray that we get a hold of this. 
don't praise God for what you can get out of him. Because if we do, we're no different than the people who laid palms down before him on Palm Sunday. I praise him because I want something out of him. I praise him because I have an agenda. I praise him because I, there's something I want that man on the donkey to do for me. And when he didn't do it, that's when they changed on him. Hear me when I say when we praise God, not for who, what he can do for us, but for who he is. We praise God for who he is, not for what he can do for us. Their praise was fickle and insincere. How do we know that? Because many of the crowd that praised him on Sunday shouted out to crucify him on Friday. All because Jesus wasn't what they wanted him to be. I wonder if I can pause on this for a minute and speak to you. Maybe you're here today and the reason why you don't pray to him anymore and the reason why you don't praise him and the reason why you don't serve him is because there was a point in time in your life where you wanted him to do something for you and you were incredibly sincere. You meant that prayer. You meant that praise. You meant every word of it and he didn't do it. And because of that, you have not prayed to him. And you have not praised him. And you've not served him and you've not come to worship him. If you're here today, whether you're watching online or you're here in this place today, know today God is calling you back to him. He wants you to know who he is and to praise him for who he is, not what he'll do for you. What kind of friendship is that? If I'm friends with Art only because of what he can give me, what kind of friendship is that? I'm only friends with Dan because he works in the sound booth, and that's the only reason why. How cheap and fickle and shallow is my friendship with these people? We wouldn't think of that for anyone else, but sometimes we treat God that way. God, do what I want, and if you don't do what I want, you're not God. I got news for you. He's still God, whether he does what you want or not. You know who's God in that conversation? You. God, you didn't do what I told you to do. You didn't do what I asked you to do. What we're saying is, God, you didn't do my bidding, my will, my desires. They changed. In a week's time, in, in, in literally less than a week, they went from being people who are praising him and proclaiming him deliverer and the son of God and the son of David, and they went to be on to be the ones that were crying out for and being people that were condoning his death and crucifixion on a cross, they turned quickly on Jesus. They went from loving him on Sunday to not wanting anything to do with him by Friday. Oh, church, we can say that we love Jesus on Sunday, but oh, please don't forsake him by Friday. Don't forsake him just because it's the weekend. Don't forsake him because it's just time to go out with your friends. We can't only serve him when his purposes serve us. We must get a revelation of who he is and praise him not for what he can give to us, but because of who he is. The scriptures tell us the titles of Jesus. He is the king of kings. In other words, he is the king above every other king and every other authority on this earth. That no other authority is higher than him and every king, ruler, president, and prime minister will bow their knee before him. He is the Lord of lords. There is no title that is higher than him. There is no greater authority than, than he the book of Revelation, verse seven, chapter 7, verse 2, declares that all blessing, 
All glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. He is given those praises because of who He is. He is worthy of our highest praise, whether we feel Him or not, whether He's answered our prayers or not, whether He does what we want Him to do or not. He is and always was the Creator, the God of the universe. Everything that's before us is because of Him, because He created it. For that alone, He deserves praise. But even beyond that, if you're a Christian today and He saved your soul, He forgave your sins, He redeemed you from the pit, He deserves your praise for that. And even if He did nothing else but two things, create you and save you, that's enough. But aren't you glad that He does so much more than that? what is the lesson from Palm Sunday? What is the lesson from the triumphal entry? Let your praise be genuine and sincere. Praise him not with just your words, but your life. The king is coming. Notice this is a picture here. We see the king is coming into Jerusalem. And usually a king comes with a triumphal procession after he's won victory. But in this case, Jesus has the cross before him. The battle and the victory is yet to come. He is riding to his destiny. He is riding to his death. And the battle is before him. And yes, he will win the victory over the grave on the third day. But there is another coming. There is another coming in which Jesus will come again. And it's interesting, if you read the book of Revelation, he's not riding a donkey the second time around. He is riding a white horse. And his garments are red, signifying his redeeming blood. And he has a sword with him. And he's come to conquer and bring victory and to restore justice to the world and to right every wrong. We see two pictures. We see Jesus riding in peace in his first coming And then we see Jesus riding to war in the second coming. The question is, are we ready for the coming of that king? Are we ready for his arrival? Because his coming will come soon. But are we ready for him right now? And the way that you're ready for him is you say, God, I acknowledge you. Jesus, I give you a place in my life. I make way for you in my life so that you would be king and rule over all. We say, Jesus, I lay everything down before you, all of my desires, all of my ambitions, all of my pride, all my possessions, all those things will burn in the fire, but one day I will see you face to face, and everything that I've lost in this life I will receive in the next. And because of that, Lord, I lay these things down before you. What is God asking you to lay down before him today? What is he asking you to lay down that you don't need anymore? And what is he asking to lay down so that he can be over it and you can let it go? So that you don't have to be worried about it or fearful about it or stressed about it anymore. That he's over it because he's ruling and he's reigning and he's coming through as king. And you're recognizing he's the king. I'm not. My problems are no longer my problems anymore. They're his. He's worthy of our praise. Not just things we say on Sunday, 
Not just the things that we say in conversation. Oh, God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. And meanwhile, we don't believe it when we get home. And we don't believe it when we're going through difficulty. God has called us to give him sincere and genuine praise. It's the only thing he doesn't already possess. Think about it. Everything in this world belongs to him. At a moment's notice, it is his. He can claim it as his own. But the only thing that we can give him that he does not possess himself is our praise. And we can give him honor and glory and glorify him for who he is. God wants us to have sincere faith as we go into Easter. It's not just a time where we celebrate and we just have a good time and we invite people over, but it's something that we look at and we go, this is sacred, this is solemn, and God, I'm going to honor you, not just on Palm Sunday, not just on Easter Sunday, but every day of my life. I didn't mention this at the beginning of my message, but it seems like a good place to mention it now. So so going into this week, I want you to, to... Really, let this be a time in which you grow closer to God. A time in which we deny ourselves and we say, Lord, I want you to be first. Normally on the first Sunday of the month, we usually take communion together, but we're not doing that today because we'll be doing that on Friday. Good Friday is when we celebrate the Last Supper and the death of Jesus. So we invite you to join us for that service on Friday at 7. But this week, I want you to Fast and pray with me. Fasting and prayer is a way of showing that you're willing to set aside everything else to be able to pray and seek God. We did it at the beginning of the year. We saw God do amazing, incredible things. He really reignited a fire inside of us. We saw God answer prayer. We saw God do some amazing things. And so I'm calling you to fasting and prayer if you want to join me. I will be doing this. You can either join me or not join me. That's fine. But what a way to be able to, to just become close to God in these next three days, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. What I would ask you to do with me is from the time the sun rises to the time that sun sets, you just fast everything. No food, just water. But when the sun goes You're listening to a message recorded at Living Hope Church in Southwick, Massachusetts. We hope you find encouragement through God's word today. Down. What I want you to do is take communion. Because I don't want Good Friday to be something that when it shows up, you're like, oh, Good Friday, communion, we're supposed to do that. I want you to remember that Jesus, when he shared his last supper with his disciples, that's exactly what he did. They partook of the Passover meal, and communion is a picture of the Passover meal to us in a small form. And before you even eat anything, before you break your fast at 6 o'clock that evening or whenever the sun goes down, Partake of communion. You know, read 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. It says, you know, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you to receive the bread, receive the cup, and each day do that. So when you leave today by the door, there's a little bag. In that little bag are three communion cups with communion for each day. If you want to join me and participate and fast together as we really devote ourselves to the Lord as we really, really focus on Him during Easter week, then I encourage you to take one of those with you and join me during those times. I'll be sending a a verse each day to kind of let you know where Jesus would be on His journey to the cross and the empty tomb. So it'll be a focus for each day of the week. But for those three days, will you just set aside everything else 
and devote yourself to the Lord and, and pray and seek God's face and pray for the impossible things that you want to see God do, but also that you'd be closer in devotion to him and that you would walk with him. I encourage you during that time, just shut out every distraction. Turn off the social media, have nothing to do with it, and just pull out your old-fashioned Bible and your notebook and just spend time with God. You'll be amazed at how much better your mental and spiritual health will be when you do it. He's worthy, isn't he, church? Not just for what he's done, but what he's going to do this week and what he's going to do in our future because our future with him is bright. He's worthy not because of anything that we have expectations for him for, but because of what he's already done and who he is. So will you prepare your heart with me as we close in prayer? My desire for you is that you would be ready for not when the king comes the first time, but when he comes the second time. Examine your heart today. I don't assume that everyone in here that's sitting in this room is a Christian. Maybe you came because you were trying to be nice. (laughs) Maybe you came because somebody asked you to. But can I tell you today that God wanted you here today because he loves you so much. And he cares about your heart, he cares about your soul, and he cares about where you'll spend eternity. I encourage you today to examine your heart and say, do I know Jesus? Do I need Jesus? And if you do, would you pray to him today and say, Lord, I want you to come into my life. I want the king to come into my heart. I'd open the gate wide for him that he would come in and that he would be Lord, deliverer, savior, king of me. So let's pray today. Father, I just thank you. Thank you for your word, which is truth and life and health. God, I pray today as we are in the middle of your Passion Week, as we begin this Passion Week, Lord, may our hearts be reflective of the devotion that we have today. May our praise be genuine and sincere. God, if we need to lay things down before you, things that we don't need, but things that we're concerned about as well, we would lay them before you and say, Lord, be king, be ruler, be savior over our lives. We give you first place today. Lord, we want to be ready for your return, whenever that may be. So, Lord, make this week be a special week for us, a blessed week, a week in which we are not just uh, observing a ritual, but that it means a genuine expression of our hearts of what you are actually doing in our lives. And we thank you for that. Be honored, be glorified, be magnified through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us Sunday mornings to worship with us. We are located at 267 College Highway in Southwick, Massachusetts. For more information about Living Hope Church, visit us online at www.livinghopechurchag.org.